Father, it's hard for us to imagine that you would allow Christ to suffer like this for sinners like us. It's only by faith that we believe it to be true. A man so lovely and so innocent to be treated as we deserve to be treated. And then through this offering, you grant us forgiveness and grace. I ask, Father, that you would help us this morning to see the suffering of Christ so that we might be most glorious to you in our lives. Show us, Lord, how he truly was and is our substitute so that we can come before you not as sinners condemned for hell but as sons and daughters made righteous by his blood. If you were to do just that great work this morning, Lord, we would be forever changed. So we ask that you would. Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I need to apologize before I start. I hate these verses. Not because they're not true. They are the word of God and therefore I love them. But I hate what they say happened to our Lord. I pray that you have not relocated these passages to some story that you heard when you were a kid. But do you realize that these things we will talk about today happen to Christ instead of you. And I want, by God's grace, the full weight of that to come upon us. Because if it does, I, I know that you will see him differently. More correctly, I pray. I want to go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. I know we dealt with Peter last week, but I want to go back to verse 12. I'm going to look at verses 12, 13, and 14 in the Gospel of John chapter 18. And then we'll look at verses 19 through 24. And if you remember back in the garden, Christ prayed to the Father. And he said, Father, if there's any other way for us to do this, this redemption of sinful men, of making a people holy and bringing them into our presence for all eternity, if there's any other way that I can avoid, Christ asked, these next 15 or so hours, then show me that way. He knew his arrest was coming. He knew his binding was coming. He knew of the false accusations, the trials, the brutal beatings, the humiliation, the crucifixion upon the cross, and worst of all, he knew the full wrath of God was going to be poured out on him. And so he said, is there any other way to do this? And you know the answer, the father said, no. And Christ said, thy will be done. In order for God to redeem one sinner, Christ had to take the full punishment upon himself. For one of us to be saved, Christ had to go through this greatest of humiliations as the sinless man, as the perfect, innocent man. He had to endure this. We call this, in theology, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. We've taught to it much here over the past two decades. It is Jesus dying in your place, receiving the full wrath, the full payment of a holy and righteous God so that this holy, just God can remain just and forgive you and me and all who repent and believe. And not just forgive us, but then impart to us the righteousness of Christ, the innocence of Christ. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This substitution took place well before he was nailed to the cross. We can go all the way back to his incarnation if we wanted to have a five or six hour sermon. Because that's when the substitution started, when he came and became a man. I want to pick it up here in the garden. The substitution started when they arrived to arrest him. And I want us to see not just our Lord's death, his substitutionary death on the cross. I want us to see this morning that he was bound for us, he was tried for us, and he was beaten for us. This was all part of the necessary substitution to redeem us. So I will give you fair warning now. This is not a light sermon And it's not something if you came here for a feel-good feeling, you're going to have. But by God's grace, you will see truth. And by God's grace, the Spirit of God will do something in you to change you, to cause you to see yourself and Him more rightly and Christ more beautifully. First point, Jesus was bound for us. Look at verse 12. If you do not have your Bibles open to the Gospel of John chapter 18, please do so. I want you to see these words with your own eyes. Verse 12, we're in the garden, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for, his, for the people. Now, we've already looked at this prophecy in John chapter 11. If you remember, God did give Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, this prophecy. Caiaphas thought that Jesus would be used as a scapegoat to appease the Romans and safeguard the power of himself and the Sanhedrin. God the Father gave Caiaphas this prophecy to reveal to humanity that Jesus Christ was going to come and die for millions and millions of souls, not for political power or persuasion. And it all starts right here in the garden as Jew and Gentile representing all mankind arrest and bind God. The Gentile band of soldiers and their captain, these were Roman guards, as Pastor Kurt taught to, and the officers of the Jews, these were temple police, and some of the Jewish leaders, they came by night and they took Jesus captive, and they led him off to Annas' house. That was the first stop. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He served as high priest from 6 to 15 A.D., but he had tremendous power in the Sanhedrin still. Some historians argue even more so than Caiaphas. Annas would engage in what we would call a preliminary hearing. It was the first of six trials, six trials Jesus would experience before his crucifixion. Three religious and three civil. Afraid they might spark a riot because if you remember, only a few days earlier, Christ had entered Jerusalem with the people crying out, the Messiah, the Messiah, Hosanna in the highest. And so they have to arrest him by night lest they cause a riot amongst the people. And so the 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 Jews argue, they, they get the Roman soldiers and they go by night to the garden to arrest and bind Christ. In fact, we're told this twice. In verse 12, they bound him. And again, in verse 24, after the preliminary hearings are finished, we are told that Annas then sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, you're probably thinking, well, they... He was going to be arrested. Even today, if someone's going to be arrested, we bind people. And that's true. It was common practice to bind someone you were going to arrest then. But John, like he does quite often, it's not just a simple additional historical fact that we know that Christ was bound. He was pointing us to the Old Testament and specifically the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. After all, Christ came for this purpose. He came to be arrested. He came to be bound. He came to be crucified. If you remember from Pastor Kurt's sermon, when Peter had his outburst and cut off Malchus's ear, Jesus said, put your sword back in its place. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then he said, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? What must be so? Isaiah 53, 7, that he would be led away like a lamb to the slaughter. 
Christ didn't have to be bound. He would have gone freely. This is why he came for this specific purpose. But he was bound just like the sacrifices were in the Old Testament. When the priest would take a sacrifice and prepare it for the altar, they would bind it. They would wrap it up. In fact, we're told in Psalm 118.27, The Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Bind Him tight. I don't think there's any more specific length or parallel that we can find in the Old Testament than that of Isaac. Genesis chapter 22, most of you know this well. Genesis chapter 22, verse 9 When Abraham and Isaac came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and did what? He bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. God would spare Isaac by providing a ram that was stuck in a thicket. He would not do so with his son. He would bind his son and he would send him to the cross that he might die in our stead. He'd be bound in our place to release us from the bondage that sin still has and die the death that we justly deserve. This is the creator of the universe we're talking about. He voluntarily put out his hands and he said, bind me. He had legions of angels he could have called at that moment to set himself free. But he said, bind me. Handcuff me. Now, most struggle with this because they don't think that they deserve to be bound. So many today, especially in our cultural moment, they don't believe that we've done anything here in the West to be bound. We enjoy so much political and economic freedom that this idea of slavery slips right by us and we miss the magnitude of Christ allowing himself to be arrested and bound in our place. And it is in our place A quick survey of someone's life apart from Jesus Christ reveals quickly that they are bound by multiple sins and multiple idols. When we minister to so many of the men at the Salvation Army, these are men, many of whom are struggling with drug and alcohol addiction, many who have struggled with a life of crime, and they come into this program, and it's a closed house program, and for six months they're given support, and they're given love, and they're given encouragement. But in talking to these men, they know that apart from someone powerful changing them, they're not going to change. In fact, in the midst of all these dialogues, there's this sense of a hopelessness because they know better than I think we do how bound they are to certain things, the drugs, the alcohol, the crime. And they know that when they leave that place without the constant support and constant supervision, unless God changes them, they will not change. I would say they're more blessed than we because they realize the enslaving power of sin that so many of us, even in the church, refuse to accept. I don't believe we're any different, my friends. Apart from Jesus Christ, your master, your master may not be stigmatized by the culture like drugs and alcohol and crime, but apart from Christ, you have a master nonetheless. You are the slave. You are bound. It may be pride, it may be money, it may be success, it may be entertainment, it may just be the need for family and friends. But apart from Jesus Christ being your substitute and being bound for you, you are still bound. I pray you are not deceived just because the culture approves of your idol and your sin does not mean that you're not enslaved to it. Much wisdom required there. The sage was right when he said in Proverbs 5.22, Our evil deeds ensnare us, and the cords of our sins hold us fast. But for all those who know Christ, for all those who have Jesus Christ as our substitute, you have become a sinner that has been set free. That he came and he cut those cords. He cut the idols. He cut away the sin that held you bound. And you said, no more am I a slave to sin. I've been set free in Christ. When our Lord taught to the binding nature of sin in John chapter 8, if you remember, the Jews, much like many today, much like many today in the church, refused to believe this. This is what they said. We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been a slave to anyone. 
Can you hear that today in the church? I've been a Christian all my life. I was baptized when I was 10. I have seven Bibles. They said to Jesus, how, it is that, how is it that you say we will become free? And Jesus answered them, listen, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And then he said, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I pray we will not be as foolish as these Jews who rejected and refused to believe their slavery in sin. And that we would see that apart from Christ being bound for you, you cannot be set free. Unless you know Jesus Christ as your substitute, you are bound this morning. Even if you're not an alcoholic or a drug addict or engaged in crime, apart from Christ, you are bound. And so first I pray we see from this passage that Jesus Christ was arrested and bound by sinful man. God was bound by sinful man so that sinful man could be set free in his sacrifice. Amen? All right, I want to show you the second point. He was also tried for us. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 and following, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. This was not a trial. I know it's identified as such in historical logs. This is an inquisition. If you remember back in John chapter 11, the Sanhedrin had already officially declared that Jesus was to be put to death. The chief priests, this is from John 11, verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then they say in verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. There's a problem. Performing miracles and gathering disciples was not a crime under Jewish law. And it certainly was not a crime punishable by death. They had nothing against Jesus. They had no specific crime that he had committed to present to either the Romans or the people who had just declared him days prior to be the Messiah. And so Annas begins the first of three religious hearings, trying to get Christ to incriminate himself, trying to find a reason to bring him before Pilate and have him crucified. And he wants to do it with some air of judicial legitimacy, even though it's being done in the middle of the night. And so he goes to Jesus and he says, you know, tell us about your teachings. Tell us about your disciples. Now, for those of you who remember your constitutional law, we have a Fifth Amendment that allows for us not to incriminate ourselves. You people say, I'm going to take the fifth. I'm not going to comment. Jewish law had the same provision that someone who was arrested did not have to testify against themselves. And so Annas right here is going against Jewish law by essentially saying to Jesus, tell us why we should kill you. Give us compelling reason. Rather than saying, this is why you're here. These are the charges. This is why we've arrested you. They couldn't say that because there were none. Jesus, knowing the Sanhedrin's plan, he turns the tables on Annas and exposes their evil intent. And he does so with three in the Greek. It's an emphatic, I have, I have, I have. Look at verse 20. He said, I have spoken openly to the world, not just his 12 disciples and not just those who followed him for those three years. Jesus says, listen, I'm not like these false messiahs who gather in the darkness and bring disciples together to, to go against you or go against the empire. He says, I have taught boldly and openly in public. And from the beginning of his ministry, which started where? In the Jordan, as John the Baptist baptized him in public. To this very hour, he says, I have preached to the world. And that word world, it's cosmos. He says, I have always been open and I preach to anyone and everyone who will listen. One commentator said Palestine was the pulpit from which Jesus preached the gospel of grace to the whole world. I love that. So he had nothing to hide and he never stayed away from speaking to audiences too big. But then he substantiates this claim by becoming very specific. Look at what he says. His second I have statement, latter part of verse 20. 
I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. This is a simple statement of fact. Christ went to synagogues throughout Israel and he regularly came to the temple on the annual feast to teach and preach this great gospel. In fact, the Sanhedrin knew this and it's why they wanted him dead. Remember what they said? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. We have to stop him from talking. So they too knew what his teachings were. They even knew who the disciples were. And then his third I have statement and its conclusion. Look at the latter part of verse 20 and following. He says, I have said nothing in secret. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And so here's the problem. If he said nothing in secret, if he did nothing in secret, then Annas, his question looks foolish as though an uninformed former high priest. Annas did not need to violate Jewish law. He did not need to force Christ to incriminate himself. All he had to do was follow the law and gather two or three witnesses to testify against Jesus. If he had committed crimes worthy of death, certainly over the past three years that he ministered, To the thousands, if not tens of thousands, there would be two or three that would come and say, yes, this man is guilty. Jesus was fully exposed, completely transparent. But there were none. And listen, there were none because he was innocent. There was not a single charge in three years that a man could bring against Christ. Not one wrong word. Not one sideways teaching, not one action that was not only not against the word of God, but completely sinuous because this man lived a perfect life. He was innocent and yet on trial. For what? For being good, for loving, for speaking the truth, for declaring the glories of God, for telling man of his sinful heart for calling people to repent and believe and be saved. This is why he is being tried. And the midnight proceeding was revealed to all to be a sham. And it was just that. The questioner, Annas, becomes the one questioned and he has no response. He has no answer. And so again, we must ask ourselves, why why have the trials at all? Why are they here? Why does he have to have three trials by these religious leaders who only want to find a reason to kill him? And why does he have to stand before Pilate and then Herod and then Pilate again and having three civil trials? Why? Why didn't God, why didn't God just send that band of soldiers and the temple police into the garden and kill Jesus there? Why didn't they do that? Why did Christ have to endure such persecution some of you would say, well, there were, there were right political reasons, and there were, in order to ensure that there was no uprising, in order to appease the Romans, in order to maintain a, a, a perception of justice by the religious elite. They went through this process, and, and surely that's true, but there's something deeper. There's a theological reason why Christ had to be tried, not just once, but six times, and the answer is the same. It's so he could be our substitute so he could stand in our place in that courtroom. Jesus could stand before Annas with a clear conscience because he was without sin. In fact, Christ could stand in any courtroom with any judge or jury and be accused of any crime of any kind and be rendered, if justice is rendered, be rendered innocent, sinless, perfect, without blemish, How about us? How about those created in the image of God? Can you, can we come before a judge? Can we come before a jury? And can we say, as Christ did, I am innocent? All my teachings, all my thoughts, all my actions, every word I've ever spoken over the past three years, you can find nothing to incriminate me. Can we make that statement using the word of God? As the standard, bringing the law of God before us, can we look into the law of God and can we say, I am innocent of all charges. I have never sinned with my tongue or transgressed God with my thoughts. 
I've never done anything to dishonor the name of God in my relationships or my actions. Can we say that we have always loved God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loved our neighbor as ourselves? Can we say that? Can we say that about our lives for one hour or a day? Certainly not three years and certainly not a lifetime. Christ could. We can't. Why? You know why. We're sinners. We're sinners. I know, sometimes when I hear someone say that to me, it stings my ear. We are sinners. Ecclesiastes 9.3, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil. And madness is their hearts. Madness is in their hearts while they live. Madness. Does not dot describe you well apart from Christ? That's a perfect word for me apart from Jesus. Mad. Evil. In fact, Christ said in Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. He's talking about the condition of man. This is not saved and unsaved. This is who we are. And apart from Christ, that's how we die. Jesus could make the claim of innocence because he was. He was a guiltless man. And so he came before Annas, and he'll come before Caiaphas, and he'll stand before the entire Sanhedrin later that morning, and then he'd be brought before Pilate, and then before Herod, and then back to Pilate again, and he could say, I'm innocent. And he truly was. Deserving of no punishment, temporally or eternally, Because his life was perfect. And because his life was perfect, my beloved, this is the great news. Because he was perfect, he could be ransomed for us. He didn't have to die for his own sins. He could stand before God and say, my life was lived perfectly before you. Now, take my righteousness and give it to them and give me their punishment. Only Jesus Christ could say that. And only Jesus Christ could do that. To stand in our place And get what we deserve to stand before the court of law and be tried on our behalf. Jesus went to the trial for you. And not a trial before the Sanhedrin or any men. He went to the eternal courtroom of God. And he stood before the God the Father. And he said, I am innocent. They are guilty. Switch us. Substitute me for them. In the second trial of that night, when Caiaphas said to Jesus plainly, in Matthew 26, 63, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. They finally ask him a question that in their minds will be worthy of death. They finally get to the heart of the issue. They want to know, are you God? Are you the Messiah? And Christ said to them in Matthew, you have said so. And in Mark it's recorded, he said, I am, I am. Their response was fitting. Matthew 26, 65, Then the high priest tore his clothes and he said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Worthy of death. Jesus Christ, the innocent man, never sinned worthy of death. How can an innocent man be worthy of death? How is that possible? They were wrong. They were worthy of death. We are worthy of death. He is the Messiah. He is the only man who has ever lived that was not worthy of death. But out of his love for us and out of his love for the Father, he took our death that we might have life. He stood trial and received a sentence, a death sentence, so that we could stand trial and be exonerated. So that you, my beloved, listen closely. So that when you die and you come before the judgment seat of God. If you are a child of Christ. If you have truly put your trust in him. I'm not talking about going to church or being baptized. I'm talking about you knowing Jesus. As your Lord and Savior, as your substitute. And you stand before the living God. And Satan accuses you of all your sins. 
And he says, that one deserves to die. And when the books are opened and your entire life is laid bare and all the sins, the millions upon millions of sins that you've committed are now revealed. And Satan says, see, I told you, that one deserves to die. You're a just God. You're a holy God. You must punish. The Lamb of God who stood trial for you, who was sentenced to die for you, who died for you, will say, no, that one is mine. That son is mine. My blood's on her. They belong to me. Set them free. And you will be free. Although guilty, because we are, none of us can stand before a holy God in our own sin. Though guilty, we will be found innocent because we are in Christ. You will be deemed perfect. You will be deemed righteous before the Father because of your substitute, because of Christ. So by God's grace, I pray that we have seen how Jesus voluntarily was bound so that we could be set free and how Jesus was voluntarily, he voluntarily was tried and sentenced to die so that we could be exonerated and sentenced to live. And that's the glorious thing. He was sentenced to die. And what sentence did you get? Eternal life with God, with Christ, with the Holy Spirit. Wow, what a great sentence to be given. I want to show you one more, and then I'll close. He was also beaten and dishonored in our place. Look at verse 22. I want to show you how he was beaten for us. Verse 22, when he had said these things, that was his response to Annas, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But what if, if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound, here we go again, bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, beloved, I, I want you to know a couple of things. It was illegal to strike a prisoner, according to Jewish law. It was considered outrageous to slap someone who was giving a defense before a judge. So this was a, a stroke of dishonor and shame. But knowing, likely knowing that Annas would be pleased with his actions, he was boxed in. The man, Annas, had no response, no favorable response. He strikes Jesus on the cheek. And I want you to know something. In the Greek, it's a very specific word. This is an open-handed strike. It's not his fist. And so why is that important? To be struck with an open hand culturally was considered shameful. It was a way to dishonor someone. And so the man was not just striking to inflict pain. He was striking to shame Christ. And then he says to Jesus, is that how you answer the high priest? Now on this side of the cross, we know that Jesus Christ is our high priest. And the irony could not be more pointed Here's this officer of the court striking and shaming the high priest and saying to the high priest, is that how you talk to the high priest? It's so grievous. Our Lord, with all the majesty and all the glory of a sinless man, he responds in truth and grace. Look at his response. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but what if, if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Our Lord's reply is exactly what he taught to literally in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What a perfect display of our Lord's obedience to his own teachings. He would not strike back. What he would do is say to Annas, Be fair, be just. Annas was sitting as a judge in a, in a court. He says, be just, be fair. And he petitions Annas, says, just bear witnesses. There are hundreds, there are thousands. Go call them and bring them in here. And Christ would be the first to say, if I have sinned, then strike me. Christ would say, if I have sinned, then kill me. But there were none. And Annas refused to see the truth. And so the darkness of the night had to grow darker. Frustrated and likely embarrassed, as all those who were around him heard Jesus call him to bring witnesses, which he could not bring, 
Verse 24, we're told that Annas then sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. It's still nighttime, early morning hours. While Jesus was being questioned by Annas, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin gather, and they meet in the middle of the night for a full-scale, illegal midnight trial, which was also against Jewish law. Now, John does not give us a record of this trial. But all three synoptic gospels do in great detail. It's probably one of the reasons that John left it out. I want to read to you from Matthew 26, 59. This is his second trial of the night. The chief priests and the whole council were gathered. I'm, so the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So here in round two, they try to find people to bear testimony, to bring some word against Christ that might give them credence for putting this man to death. But their plan is not going as planned. In their foolishness, in their pride, they thought they could incriminate Christ. They thought, you know what? If he talks long enough, we'll get him. He'll say something that will give us reason to put him to death. After all, he is just a man. And they thought, you know, that's not working. We certainly, we can find someone. There has to be someone over this past three years that can come into this courtroom and testify to Christ doing something worthy of death, and they could find no one. And so again, frustrated, they say to him plainly, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And he said, I am. I am. Now, my beloved, this is real simple. If Christ had been lying and declared to be God and he was not, then according to Jewish law, he was worthy of death. He should have been killed. But because he is the Son of God and because he was speaking the truth, their response, he deserves death, represents the worst verdict in all of human history. The worst verdict. Sinful man accusing God of being God and then sentencing him to die because he tells the truth. Sinful man accusing God of being God and then killing him because he tells the truth. We're told then in Matthew 26, verse 63, then after this, after they've concluded, he's a blasphemer. He's speaking, blasphemy. We need to kill him. After this, then they mocked him as they beat him. They blindfolded him and they kept asking him, prophecy, who is it that struck you? Later that morning, we know he's handed off to Pilate and the Roman governor had him flogged with a whip so badly. I'll put it in our own context. When Mel Gibson went to film The Passion of the Christ in 2004, Bible experts told him, if you portray the flogging of Jesus Christ, it will have to be, if they allow it to be, an NC-17. No one can see it under 17 and not an R rating. And so Mel Gibson, as a director, they toned down that scene so they could give it an R rating. That's how bad. How bad. So disfigured that Isaiah was right. He did not even look like a man after this brutal beating. But that wasn't it. Following this beating and Pilate's pronouncement to be crucified, we're told in Matthew 27, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. Why? Why would they have to do this? Why couldn't they just crucify him? God would not have allowed it had it not been necessary. God loved Christ. God loves Christ infinitely. He would not have allowed one snide remark, one slap on the face, one stripe on the back, one blow to the head. He would have spared him all of this if he could. So why did he allow it? Why the beatings? The same reason that he was bound and the same reason he was tried 
and I know this is going to be hard for some of you to hear, this is what you and I deserve. It's what we deserve. Christ was arrested and he was bound because we deserve to be arrested and bound. Christ was tried and sentenced to die because we deserve to be tried and sentenced to death. Christ was beaten beyond recognition and nailed to a cross and took the full wrath of God because that's what we deserve. And beloved, that's who we are apart from Christ. That's the heart of man as described in Ecclesiastes and by Jesus himself. And whether we want to hear it or not, this is our hearts. This is how bad our sin is before a thrice holy God. That's how bad it is. Christ didn't just save you from a little bit of your sin. He doesn't just stop you from these idols that you play with. He redeems a man that is completely fallen, a woman that is completely destroyed. In a parable regarding his second coming, Jesus shares this in Luke chapter 12. Listen closely, my beloved. If the servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, he's describing us, and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on, that, on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know, and he will cut his servant in pieces and put him out with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act accordingly to his will will receive a severe beating. The consequences of our sins are terrifying. I would say beyond words that I could not preach long enough and hard enough to convey to us the deceived heart how dark our hearts really are before this most holy God. Listen closely. Apart from Jesus Christ, you are bound. You are bound. Apart from Jesus Christ, you will come before God arrested and bound by your own sin. You will be found guilty as a sinner. That's not someone who is good but sins sometimes. Not someone whose heart is generally good but sometimes stumble. You will come before God sinful through and through. You will stand trial apart from Christ and you'll have no lawyer. Satan will testify, as will likely thousands upon thousands of the millions upon millions of sins that you've committed. Truth will be spoken. You will be found guilty. You will be sentenced to die. You'll be severely beaten, and you'll be cast into the lake of fire with Satan and the demons and all those who refuse Jesus Christ as a substitute. That's truth. That's truth. Either Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and therefore your substitute, and He has satisfied it all. He has. He was arrested. He was bound. He was tried. He was sentenced to die. He was beaten. He was crucified, and He drank the cup of God's wrath in full. Either that is true of you, He's done that for you to set you free, or not. You will bear it yourself if you do not know Christ. The full punishment coming upon you. Now I know if I were to preach this sermon in some churches here in our own backyard, some would laugh at it. Maybe they would laugh at me. Certainly some would diminish it and others would twist the character and nature of God and they would say things like, that's not the God that I know. The God that I know hates sin but loves the sinner and would never treat anyone like that. They would say God loves unconditionally without expectation, without profession of faith, without fidelity of Christ. If you've had that lie sewn into your mind this morning, I pray that you hear otherwise. That by God's grace you hear that the one true living God as revealed in the Bible will exercise his full, total, and complete wrath upon everyone who rejects the Son and it will be total, I think we can say 
that the arrest, the binding, the trial, the execution, the beatings will pale in comparison. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he stands in your place by putting your trust and your faith in him. That does not have to be your end. Your response to this, although it may be a struggle, is not complicated. Listen. And it doesn't matter how long you've been in church or how many times you've been baptized. Listen. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as your substitute, then the right response to this wrathful sermon is to this morning, this moment, see your sins before a holy God and repent of them. To confess before God right now, I am a sinner worthy of an infinite number of deaths. Father, forgive me. Put your faith in Christ and the redemption that he accomplished on the cross for you. That's the right response to put your trust in Jesus. And what a waste. What a waste. For that work, what a waste for Christ to be bound and tried and sentenced to die and brutally beaten and crucified. What a waste for Christ to drink the cup and you to say, no, I will not be saved. What a waste. Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody say, no, God, give me your full wrath for all eternity instead of putting it upon your son that I might be set free? What a waste to deny grace, to bear our own sins before a holy God, to come before him without a substitute, without a savior, no greater waste. If you know Christ, if he is your substitute, And there should be another response. And there are several. I'll give you a few and then I'll stop talking. I believe the first response should be one of both mourning and rejoicing. There should be mourning in these verses. It's caused me to mourn most of the week. To mourn over the fact that Jesus went through such misery and such suffering for you that he would actually have to go through this because our sins are that grievous. If you ever begin to think that you're a good person, if you ever begin to think that, you know, maybe you're worthy of being saved, go back and contemplate the humiliation and the arrest and the beating and the crucifixion of Christ. That's how bad our sins are. And then rejoice. Rejoice over it. Rejoice that Christ would do this for you, that he would take it for you, that he loves you so much, that he loves the Father so much that he'd say, all right, I'll take all of that. I'll extend my hands, I'll be arrested, I'll be tried, I will be beaten, I'll do all that for them and for you, Father. Rejoice over that. And if you do, the reality of what we sang earlier will come, I pray, or become a guiding principle in your life. I'll read this passage. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Christ there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and what? And pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. No one sacrificed more for you than Christ. No one loves you more than Christ. No one. If he loves you this much, and we know that he does, will you live a life worthy of this calling? As sons and daughters, as people worthy of death, will you do, as the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4.1, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. A life where we want to know God, and we want to know His Word, and we want to obey it. A life where we want to love God more each and every day as we contemplate this great sacrifice that He made to redeem sinners like us. Becoming people that fight for the kingdom. 
that share the gospel with the lost, that engage in the making of disciples one to another, that run the race and fight the good fight as the Apostle Paul calls us to. My beloved, I truly believe that if you contemplate the humiliation of Jesus Christ, the work that he had to do for us, it will compel you to these things. It will compel you to love him more. And that love will drive you to holiness. Go back and revisit this again. Go back and read the testimonies in the gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Open up for yourselves that substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, which was more than just hanging on that cross. Do that for yourselves that you might be blessed. Let's pray. Father, we know that Christ was pierced for our transgressions. We know that he was crushed for our iniquities. We know that you placed upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And we know, because your word tells us this, that his wounds have healed us. And therefore, we're healed. Father, forgive us for taking so lightly the great work of Christ. Forgive us for not seeing ourselves worthy of such pain and suffering and humiliation and death. Bring that to our minds, Father, not to discourage us and not to depress us, but to cause us to rejoice that you gave it to Christ instead. Bring that to our hearts and minds. Solidify it, I pray. Press it in deep. We might be a grateful and thankful people going each and every day saying, I know what I deserve, but I didn't get it. Christ did, that I might live. Father, do that for us, please. So much noise, so many distractions, so many things that draw us away from gazing upon a crucified Christ. We pray that you would help our minds in that way you would cleanse our hearts, set us on that narrow path, Father, that leads unto you. This is what we desire. We long for you. We long for your presence. We long for Christ. In his name, amen.